and welcome to episode 149 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I chat with Dominique Zeno and Maria Jersky, professors at LaGuardia Community College. You will hear more from Dominique and Maria in a bit. But first, I want to share with you some information about the 2024 RET Canada Conference. The theme is, Where's the Rhetoric? From the CFP. Quote, Our theme this year broadly inquires as to where rhetoric might be found in any and all endeavors, and perhaps if it is there in the first place. Such an inquiry can be appreciated both in itself and it, as it serves the overall Congress theme of sustaining shared futures. Futures which will be imagined and negotiated through the joint labors of persuasion and rhetorical critique. End quote. This year's RET Canada will debut a new joint conference structure with a an in-person component from June 12th through 14th at McGill University in Montreal with the Congress for the Humanities and Social Sciences and b an accessible and affordable online day of virtual presentations on Saturday, June 8th, 2024. They welcome paper proposals on all aspects of rhetoric in English or French with submissions due by January 20th, 2024. This point is unnecessary from an informational perspective, but does get at the uh, heart of RETCAN for listeners who might know them. RETCANADA is a great place to meet other folks working at the intersections of rhetoric and many other fields like literature and medicine, law and pop culture, and even AI. Their conference features plenary sessions, colloquial discussions to foster engagement and exchange of ideas. You can find more information about RET Canada and the conference at retcanada.org. Dominique Zeno and Maria Jersky are professors at LaGuardia Community College. Dominique teaches a full range of courses in the English department's composition sequence and teaches regularly in interdisciplinary learning communities for first-year students. Her scholarship focuses on writing studies and writing program administration and currently appears in Teaching English in the Two-Year College and WPA Journal. Maria Jersky is a professor of education and language acquisition at City University of New York's LaGuardia Community College and the founder and director of the Literacy Brokers Program, a program which promotes the publication practices of multilingual scholars at LaGuardia and beyond. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dominique and Maria. What's your uh, name and your title and your institution, your role there? Who are you and what do you do? Okay, my name is Maria Jersky. 
Um, I am in the education and language acquisition department at LaGuardia Community College, which is part of the City University of New York. Um, I'm a tenured full professor, which is good. Um, what else? What kind of classes founder. do you teach? Sorry? What courses do I teach? No, answer Dominique's question. Oh, what did you ask? Sorry. You're, you're also the founder of Literacy Brokers. Oh, right. I'm the founder of Literacy Brokers, which is a program for designed for multilingual faculty to kind of promote their publishing practices, because a lot of times there's problems with gatekeepers at journals. Um, and so I wanted to support that. And the institution actually supported me supporting that. But interestingly, a lot of so-called monolingual and multi-dialectical people came and said, can I be in this group too? So we can get into that. Um, and I teach, I was hired to teach ESL, but I don't teach ESL now, which can be part of the interview as to why I don't, um, since that is my specialty. But I teach now bilingualism, linguistics. Uh, I've taught French. And I teach a graduate's course on academic writing um, for multilingual writers. And uh, my name is Dominique Dino. I'm a professor of English, also at LaGuardia. Um, I um, am also one of our WPAs. Uh, uh, this year I'm on sabbatical, so I am not uh, active in that role, but I will be back um, in February. Um, and I'll be finishing up my terms. This is my second three-year term at the WPA, working with um, two other colleagues in a team of three. Um, so um, what else? I also, um, I teach a range of courses, but primarily I teach the courses in our, our composition sequence, um, English 101, English 102, English 103, um, 101 is our basic comp course, 102 is writing through literature, and 103 is our research paper class. And then I teach a handful of electives like um, cultural identity and American literature is one I really love. Um, I do, my PhD is actually in American studies, it's not in comp rep. Um, and, you know, Charles, you looked at our CVs, so you, <laughs> you saw that, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's, uh, you know, I think especially at community colleges, it is really true that a lot of folks who end up like running the writing programs didn't necessarily get that training in grad school and had to learn along the way. Um, luckily, I did get some hands-on training, but, but my dissertation itself was in American studies. Um, so what else? Uh, I also work with our honors program, um, and I, I have um, helped to produce our honors journal uh, the past few years where we publish uh, writing from across the disciplines by really talented students um, who actually go through a peer-reviewed publication process. And um, we've been really proud of them for the work they put in to like take feedback and revise and like really get that first taste of what it's like to, to publish an article. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me for an interview to talk a little about um, your research, your teaching, uh, as part of the City University of New York system. Now you're both, are you, just correct me if I'm wrong, but you're both at LaGuardia Community College, yes. right? Okay. Yeah. All right. So this rural Alabama boy finally got to New York City for the first time last year for Christmas. 
I believe it was the coldest day in the history of New York uh, in Christmas 2022. But I was there with my wife. We got to go see Hamilton at the Richard Rogers Theater. Oh, just oh, a few fun. years late, but you know, we're there. We're doing it. It's up. <laughs> but we didn't go to Long Island, uh, which uh, is that where LaGuardia Community College is at? No. no. Okay. Help help us situate. Help let's let's think about it systemically. Help us situate uh LaGuardia Community College like within New York City in relate in relation to like where you live, kinda, and also how it works, CUNY works, and how it works as a part of CUNY. Okay. Um, I'll take a stab at that. So you might know where the United Nations is in Manhattan. It's on the east side, um, beautiful, iconic building. And LaGuardia, if you just swim across the river, that's where LaGuardia is. Um, but don't because you'll drown. Really bad currents. Um, so it's in Queens, New York, which is across the East River. Um, it's called Long Island City. So you're not wrong. So that's the town is Long Island City, but it's really close to another town called Sunnyside. Um, and it's a very, um, yeah, it's a really interesting campus. When I was interviewed, the provost said, we're the ugliest campus at CUNY. So we're just kind of like in this industrial urban area with buildings that were formerly factories, were kind of confluence of Long Island Railroad and the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Um, there's a cement factory in our backyard. <laughs> you want to call it that. So yeah, and we just kind of run into people and hang out on the big sidewalk, um, which is really close to a very busy road. Um, so yeah, so it's just east of Manhattan. And in terms of CUNY, uh, there's 25 campuses, right, Dominic? There's 25 campuses. I think we have seven community colleges and maybe 12 four-year colleges. And then sprinkling of graduate schools, like law school, graduate school, um, professional schools um, that are in every borough. There's five boroughs in New York. And beyond that, people can Google. Um, anything to add? Um. Uh, so we, we have a great archive on campus, the LaGuardia and Wagner archives that has a whole history of like how the college started. So it was founded, I think in 1972, I believe, yeah, 71. And we were community college number nine. And there was no name at that point. It was pre-LaGuardia, but I, I've seen some great photos of, um, you know, the buildings before they were repurposed. And I think uh, the building where the English department is used to be the Sunshine Biscuit Factory or something like that. And there were other buildings were maybe Ford factories. So if you can imagine that, I mean, we're not talking about a particularly glamorous uh, site. Uh, it's sort of, you know, like four buildings stretched out along a pretty major road. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike um for your colleges with large endowments we don't have they're not named after people they are the e building the b building the c building the m building yeah. um and you know inevitably students come in and they're like where do i go and e and m connect and you know it's not so um but all that said there's there's a lot of uh warmth that i think the people bring to the place but i would say the the, the place itself is not exactly um uh like a, a a warm and fuzzy location. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I wonder this, you know, I, I went to community college in the suburbs of a, of a semi-large city of Birmingham. It's not a major city, I wouldn't say, but like, you know, in Birmingham, Alabama, you know. Uh, okay, it's a big city, yes. It's a big uh, city. <laughs> okay, just making sure. I don't know. I don't know how we rate big cities. Any, I don't know. Anyway, um, so I went to community college in the suburbs there. Um, talking to folks who teach in really rural areas at two-year colleges, talking to folks like you who are teaching in, like, <laughs> very populated area. Um, why is location an important topic, an important thing to talk about in relation to teaching at two-year colleges? Yeah, I think one thing that we hear from students when we say, why did you come to LaGuardia? And I think this is true across the CUNY system. Students come to the college that's closest to their house. I mean, that's just sort of how it goes. You know, like they think about, okay, I'm balancing school with work, with maybe raising a family, with other caretaking responsibilities. Like, what is my commute? What's that triangle or, you know, some other you know, route that that's gonna right. get me from where I need to go, point A, B, C, D. Um, so, you know, we are located in the midst of some major transportation hubs, Queens Plaza, Court Square. Um, there's, uh, we're by the Woodside stop, which connects the Long Island Railroad. So we really are pretty accessible for students in various boroughs. Um, so we, we do have um, a lot of students from the borough of Queens, but we have some students who are taking the train an hour from Brooklyn, students who are taking the train an hour down from the Bronx. Um, and, you know, really like those routes and, and, you know, how they move through the city from place to place, like that really shapes their whole experience. And it also shapes the way they can engage at the college. So, you know, like a student who has to travel an hour and a half each way is going to be less likely to stay for that student club meeting after class. They're going to be less likely to use the writing center and go to an appointment after they've had three hours of classes, you know, like it's so it's really like location is kind of interwoven into like, I think their experience and our experience and how much time we really have to work with them. And I would just add that it's changed a little now that you're saying that um, uh, since COVID, I don't want to say post COVID because I don't want to jinx us, but um, um, I think that a lot of students uh, kind of realized that they could be online. And so therefore, yeah, just sort of arranging when they're on campus has a lot to do with their enrollment. It's like, well, if I'm in, if I'm on Wednesday, then I want to take another class that's on Wednesday and I need a place to work, but otherwise I think before COVID, we kind of assumed that they'd be coming a couple of times a week and maybe that's slightly different. And maybe it's opened it up to other, you know, to students being located elsewhere. That's interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, I, well, if you, anyone that I talk to, I've been talking about location, location matters in so many ways, right? In relation to my research. Um, so I'm always interested to think about it in relation to, to other people's research, like your own, uh, focusing on two-year colleges, focusing on, focusing on um, the institution. Uh, focus, uh, and, and so, frankly, I'm not going to try to <laughs> verbalize your research for you. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your research interests? Uh, jump in. Sure. Um, so I, I think, you know, the thing that... Um, really brought Maria and I together was um, 
as we were talking about earlier, sort of people's writing lives at the institution. And, um, you know, we were both doing different types of ethnographic research, um, kind of mixed message, methods research, uh, discourse analysis. And then um, we stumbled upon the methodology of institutional ethnography. Um, and uh, Michelle LaFrance uh, has a great book about this that came out in 2019. Um, and she's putting together uh, another uh, a collection now um, with folks using this methodology. But um, we really started to think about the ways that that could serve us working at this large urban community college that had many moving pieces. Um, and we really, uh, you know, because time is limited and because we have high teaching loads, we get, you know don't have as much time for research as we would if we were at an, an R1, um, we, it, it, it helped us, um, institutional ethnography or IE as, as we um, started to call it, helped us to kind of pinpoint like what are the, um, the facets of the institution that we wanna study that we think are shaping students and faculty's experiences. It helps us to pinpoint documents, um, what IE calls boss text, that have um, a lot of weight at the institution, things like um, assessment rubrics or mission statements or strategic plans, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I think that um, it's it's been, an, uh, it's opened up for us a way to kind of take our ethnographic work to the next level by looking beyond sort of individual small groups of students or faculty and looking a little more at like, what are the structures that are shaping their experiences institutionally? Yeah, and I'll just I'll add to that, that um, we can sort of tool down because um, Dominique and I are starting an institutional ethnography together, but we actually had a co-collaborator separately on our separate institutional ethnographies. And the one that I worked on was on linguistic justice on campus. And so I mentioned that um, uh, my, my dissertation is in English education, but it was very close to RETCOMP. So I'm a compositionist who specializes in multilingual writers. And I was just very frustrated at how difficult it was to change our ESL program, which felt really old um, and basically just not really in touch with best practices. So it did feel quite political to me and quite a sort of labor thing where people maybe didn't want to change what they were already used to doing. So I was kind of pissed off. I kind of like went for, you know, would bring in, these are the best practices. This is the latest research. These are the position papers. These are the white papers. Um, this is what the disciplines say. And they just really, there really wasn't that much of a response. And the institution is so powerful in that sense that it almost all of this, these practices once you enter the campus, feel normal. When I go to a conference, I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. So, you know, I wanted to get a little bit more Buddhist about this and just be not angry at people and just see like, why, why is it so hard to change? And institutional ethnography kind of gives you that distance where it's like you do look at this, these boss texts, this kind of documentary reality that tells people basically what their jobs are, what they're supposed to do. If these documents are created by people and they're taken up by people, so I don't want to say that there's no agency, 
But what we were really looking for is like, how is language lived on campus? Now we have a very multilingual campus and we always, you know, CUNY prides itself on being, you know, having the most language diversity. And that actually becomes a problem because everyone's like, well, we have so many languages and we're so proud of it. And the university and the college just celebrates it so much that I guess we're doing a good job. But in our actual teaching practices, I found it to be really inequitable and in some ways even racist. Um, like, wait, how are we assessing the students and how are we keeping track of like any kind of systemic bias that's going into it? So we started, you know, part of it is like looking at the documentary reality, looking at these documents, but then interviewing people about how they live language on campus. Um, so what are their languages? And so that kind of in terms of research, really took a deep dive into what's an equitable kind of survey to ask about languages that's not going to be, you know, telling students or telling people, because we asked staff and faculty as well, um, to just kind of tick off their proficiency. We want them, we want something much more nuanced. So the situations in which they use their languages, they have an opportunity in our survey to talk about up to five languages. And we really want to break down what people think about fluency or having a language it's not like being a you know double monolingual people have different languages for different contexts so we just really wanted to bring that out and see you know where on campus people felt their languages were most welcomed and where it was least welcomed and so that's what we that's what that institutional ethnography has been looking into and it's been amazing um just in terms of i think breaking down and kind of reveal breaking down the myths and really revealing some beliefs and values around language that, you know, I think, you know, people kind of suffer from, like, you know, you, you can't learn a language if you're, you can't learn English well, if you're using another language, something as basic as that, which you'd say, wow, that's been disproved years ago, but that's a kind of solidified practice that happens in some places that goes unchecked. So that's enough I'll say about that. And then Dominique did yours as well. Yeah, so uh, with the same colleague, and we should name her uh, Dr. Tara Coleman, who is uh, really wonderful. She's in the English department. Um, I separately, um, starting a few years ago, was working on um, an institutional ethnographic project where we were interviewing faculty about their writing assignments. And we were really interested in um, kind of doing a, a deeper dive into like their own experiences with writing um, and then what they uh, what their intentions were behind assigning the writing that they did, um, what restrictions or constraints they felt uh, were in place uh, coming from the institution, um, how they evaluated that writing, how they maybe worried that others would see their students writing. Um, and so we did a series of interviews with faculty across the curriculum. And this is really um, you know, a, a sort of whack wid focus study that we we actually submitted to the WAC journal and um, we have a preliminary acceptance from them to, to publish this. But um, we, we were really interested in, you know, how do people across disciplines um, rationalize the way they assign writing, especially at a two-year college where our curriculum are already, you know, the classes are so full, the semesters are so full, we barely feel like we have time to get through what we need to get through, at, you know, in the most basic way. Um, so why were these faculty going that extra step to assign writing? What did they hope students, uh, what did they think students would get out of it? Um, what motivated them um, to take the time to read it and to comment? And um, 
so yeah, we got a lot of really interesting responses and it also helped us to understand uh, maybe some fears or uncertainties they had about, um, you know, whether the students were developing as writers um, and also just, you know, uh, some limitations in their own thinking based on how the institution evaluated writing. Um, we have like a, we use the, um, a set of rubrics that are coming out of um, AAC and use value rubrics. I don't know if you, you're familiar with those, Charles, but a bunch of schools use them. I believe both two year and four year and um, they kind of guide our assessment process. And so the, the rubrics are in um, the uh, written ability, or uh, written competency, oral ability, um, and then digital ability. And then they're also in um, global learning, um, critical thinking, and of course now I'm blanking on the last one, but it's sort of these, these thick three, three competencies and three abilities, these six areas. And we really use that to evaluate student progress across the entire college. But of course, the written um, communication ability is pretty narrowly defined. And, um, you know, those of us in English who are really invested in students writing and who are on the front lines working with students writing um, sometimes wonder if it's um, if it's really helping us as a college to like understand what goes on when a student writes. Like if it, you know, it may be more limiting than it is informative sometimes. So sorry, that was a kind long-winded answer. Well, but. they become kind of like a one of those boss texts, mm -hmm. where it sort of gets internalized. Yeah, sure. Like, okay, this is what good writing is, and so yeah, it does become kind right. of problematized about are people teaching to the rubrics or are they teaching students? Exactly. So just to clarify, for me, really, maybe a listener. The rubrics that, that you're describing, that you described, Dominique, those are what you used in your analysis for the in institutional ethnography. Or, correct. Okay, so then here's my question. Because you, you've talked about so many, like, important topics, right? I mean, equity, labor equity, first of all, like, in, in our profession. <laughs> so I'm warning, okay? I know that you are. Uh, but you're also talking about things like knowledge transfer across disciplines. You're talking about, uh, in terms of thinking about writing, you're talking about assessment practices. You're talking about anti-racist pedagogy, right? Uh, you're talking about all these things in your responses. So here's my question, and you may have to think about it, and that's okay. How do these things connect to the learning outcomes of the classes that you teach? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start, maybe, and try to like fumble my way through that because it is a big question. I think, you know, one thing is, um, I have really been pushing for um, a more robust, like WACWID program at the college where, you know, we're really, um, we have a writing related learning outcome for every course, especially the upper level courses. Um, and, you know, we're really looking at like how students formulate ideas, how they think critically, how they work with sources in um, a more detailed way. Um, I would love, and this is, you know, about learning outcomes, but also a little bit about assessment, you know, I would love if we were able to really look at a portfolio of students' work, and if our assessment was not based on individual samples, um, individual, um, you know, bits of writing, clips here and there, but actually 
you know, if we could look more longitudinally at a student and their progress over two semesters, three semesters, four semesters, right? And um, we do have a, um, an e-portfolio system that students use at the college. They start an e-portfolio in their first semester in our first year seminar class. Uh, and in some cases, though not uh, very many, it does carry through with them to the end of their degree. Um, but you know, we haven't gotten to the point with our assessment where we actually look holistically, longitudinally at how that student grew from semester one to semester four, or in most cases six, um, because they really are there for for you know um, at least six semesters. Um, so you know, I, I think that yeah, going back to outcomes, like I, I would really love to see across classes a writing focused outcome and. I would love to have conversations with faculty across disciplines where we could come into the same room and bring students papers and talk about like what's working, what's not working, what improvement do you see? Um, I want to have more of those conversations. Right now we have them in the English department, but they're not really happening across the college. Yeah, um, that was really articulate. I'm glad you went first. <laughs> um, I think for me, I'm thinking about myself in the classroom when you say that. And I feel the kind of um, burden of these sort of assessments and outcomes and competencies. I get so-called normed in them. I read them, I see them. And I feel like those are my assignments. And then I look at my students and I feel like, okay, am I going to teach? If I teach for that, I feel all this pressure about what I need to do in my class. Why do I feel this pressure? Because the students are, are so, uh, again, I'll just say kind of heterogeneous in their abilities and what they know. And so if I'm working from the student, I have maybe, you know, 20 students in each class. Um, what do I want to focus on during my semester with them? Um, and so ultimately they're going to have to deposit their writing um, to be assessed, or they're going to put things on their e-portfolio. And I just have to say that I feel really conflicted a lot of times in terms of my feedback of how is this going to make me look versus what, what can it build on for them? And I feel like, so I could talk about a content course like Introduction to Bilingualism, but um, we could talk about ESL, which is sort of a pre-matriculation class. And a big problem I had with that was just the placement itself. So if we have outcomes for what each which each level of ESL should be, most of the time I felt these students have been misplaced because we don't have a really great way of testing and placing students. Um, and then part of, I also feel really ambivalent to the idea of like written assessment that gets, it's like we're talking about writing. When so much is done, could be done in a multimodal way or transmodal way. And a lot of the students are like already kind of practicing these kinds of literacies. So those are just some of the things that make me feel bad. <laughs> like as a teacher, what am I doing? You know, there's like, there's even this kind of story that pervades um, these kinds of assessments about what we're preparing students for. And that real world just feels so different than the real world I see <laughs> of, you know, what we're preparing students for, the economy. So it becomes this sort of like, you know, CUNY calls itself the um, 
American dream machine or, you know, America's greatest engine towards social mobility. So in my classroom, I just have to say that sometimes I feel like a bit of the labor is just kind of working that out. And what am I doing for the best? And I think a lot of faculty members kind of feel this almost kind of imposter syndrome are afraid to reveal that because a lot of their promotion and reappointment depends on what the perception of what's going on in their classrooms. So it's a kind of a different way of looking at that. This is really interesting to me um, in my own local context as a second year tenure track professor in a state like Texas, where there is constant navigation and tension with, you know, um, my own morals and values and ethics and my ethic and legislative directives and oppressive <laughs> infrastructure, you know, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things, and I may be way off here, um, you put me in, on, on the right track, but one of the things I was hearing as you talked about how cool it would be to like follow students in a longitudinal type of way uh, with your research topic in mind is, of course, the thing I thought about was the Stanford Writing Project, right? I mean, uh, for, and, and Lunsford worked there, but like, and, and so like, that's like that thing, this thing that we cite, you know, and that like we know about and that and that made, made this like mean so much meaning, right, for the field and studying writing. But it seems like doing something similar in a place like CUNY right now in this moment would yield just such generative, fruitful stuff for our field. I said, tell him about our project now. Oh, so yeah. It's, it's like almost like it's a perfect segue. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, well, I think, um, you know, it is, it's super complicated to track students. So just to, to affirm that, like it, um, you know, in terms of just when students take courses, uh, not taking them necessarily in sequence, um, taking leaves and then coming back. I mean, there's so many barriers, both in terms of their own lives and then in terms of the institutional structures that make it difficult to do that sort of longitudinal work that we all know produces salt. Um, so that remains frustrating. Um, one way that uh, Marie and I are exploring to um, try to follow and, and understand students in context um, is uh, to look at their social ties on campus. And um, we're, uh, we're borrowing a concept from a sociologist, Mark Granovetter, um, this idea of the, the strength of weak ties. Um, and uh, in the, the project that we're um, launching now, we um, are really interested in like, what are, who are the, the people um, and what, what offices uh, do students interact with on campus? Um, and how do they, over the course of, let's say, the life of a, a writing assignment, um, form ties that facilitate their ability to complete the assignment? Or perhaps in some cases, um, you know, don't form these ties um, and that disrupts their ability to do the assignment. So, you know, we're interested in, um, especially on a community campus like ours, a campus where students are coming and going, where faculty too are coming and going, um, and there isn't that kind of like residential culture 
um, where everyone is, you know, spending all this concentrated time in the same place. Um, you know, like how do students form these ties and um, in what way does that sort of facilitate the writing process um, and help them to develop some confidence in themselves as writers? Um, so, Marie, I don't know if you want to that. Well, again, just to add to that, I think part of the impetus for this um, was, again, it's another institutional ethnography, but we're also bringing in um, this kind of um, strong ties, weak ties from social network theory is that we, we're, again, there's a kind of a story about what writing is on campus. And we wanted to counter that story with like, actually, what is the writing culture on the campus? Like, not just the classes, because if you do the class, you're going to say, okay, we have this writing sequence, we have a writing center, we have WACWID, and then we have these other courses around writing. And sure, those are the institutional um, kind of hubs of where writing happens. But we wanted to know, well, how do students experience it? Like, do they talk to their friends about their writing assignments? Do they talk to someone else? Do they Google, you know, like, what is actually the writing culture? How do students get writing done on campus or not done? And so, yeah, we designed or, you know, are looking into doing this so that we just get that story of, you know, we call it the life cycle of a writing assignment, but Dominique and I are saying, okay, we should do that for ourselves. Just keep track of the, you know, strong and weak ties in our own writing assignments. And we start saying, wow, I'm kind of working on multiple assignments at once. And we're like, right, that's what students do as well. So they're working on different assignments and maybe those assignments bleed into each other. You know, maybe, you know, instead of just seeing them as like separate and separate classes, how do you know, I know for me, when I'm working on something it always there's this kind of connection of like anything I'm thinking about or reading kind of bleeds into it. But how do students do that? And we're just really curious and we'd love to like give a different version or an authentic version of like our campus's writing culture. Um, broadly defined, even it's just like, are, is it always in writing? Is it like, you know, is it audio? Is it are they doing video? I'm not sure, you know, that we'd really be open to that. That's super cool. Um, because right now in my own mind, I'm back to um, the activity theory, right? Training <laughs> people, right? And the cultural historical people uh, theories and stuff for writing um, that were a part of my graduate program at Illinois State University guiding that program. Um, uh, let me come back to the present. <laughs> no, no, but that's so cool. Like, who were who were your heroes in that? Oh, I wouldn't. And transparently, I don't would not call them heroes. Um, and in this moment, I cannot. Vygotsky. <laughs> exactly. No, but that's yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. that's our hero. Okay. Okay. And, yeah, I proved my worth. <laughs> In the uh, in the social theory writing world, um, don't ask me to name another one right now. Okay. No, that's that's you named the right one. That's okay. You yeah. get to go to the club tonight and have tacos. <laughs> and have tacos. No, um, it, <laughs> that's funny. Um, and I'm a little embarrassed because I really like could not name another Habermas. I don't know. I couldn't name another. I couldn't name another. No, Vygotsky. That's fine. That's like the the basis. But, you know, the idea that the idea that writing is social. Yeah. Right. Um, it sounds simple, but it's not. And for me, you know, coming across Vygotsky and 
learning about how writing is is social and kind of the political implications of that just blew my mind and propelled me into um, getting a doctorate. You know, yeah. I just wanted to teach English and be a writer, travel the world, but I got radicalized by Vygotsky. Oh, that's what happened to me a little bit. I don't know. Um, okay, a question for you. How has your research emerged from your teaching? I know you've touched on this a bit, but maybe we can like talk a little bit more about it. Um, yeah, uh, well, so I, I can say, um, I think, you know, my research has emerged not only from teaching, but um, also from uh, being a writing program director. Um, so, I, you know, like seeing the students in my classes, working with the students, and then also, um, you know, kind of turning the tables and, and meeting those students in, an, you know, in other situations where they say, I'm having this issue, or I'm coming to you because I'm really dissatisfied with my grade, or, you know, I'm having trouble with this professor, or I don't understand this assignment. And so it's been good, you know, to work with, like, maybe I work with, um, like 60 first year writers in a semester. Um, and But then also to see students who I don't know as well who are um, who are in the program and to sort of get a larger picture of like what kind of writing is happening on the campus. Like what are students' um, experiences with different assignments? And um, I think in, in doing that, like I really started to think about um, you know, like what the identity of our writing program was. And I really got interested in doing research on like how writing programs take shape. Um, and actually in um, Maria's Literacy Brokers Workshop, which was really generative for me, she introduced me to um, an article um, about Underlife. Um, and Brooks is the last name of the author. Maria, I'm, I'm blanking on his first name right now. But um, this was published uh, uh, now probably like close to 20 years ago, but it was looking at basically students in writing classrooms and how they resisted what was going on in the classroom. And it wasn't that they weren't doing writing. It wasn't that they were completely slacking off. They just didn't really want to follow the directions in the way that the teacher was giving them directions. They were like, well, I'm going to do it my own way, or I'm going to, you're saying right now, well, I'm going to write later because I don't write well in this environment. Like they were just, Robert Brooke, thank you. Yeah, they were, they were resisting. And um, so she, Maria turned me on to this article and I started to read um, some of the work that um, had inspired the article um, by another sociologist, Irving Goffman, who was, um, who really created this term underlife. Um, and he was studying asylums, um, which is super fascinating. He was studying how like inmates in mental asylums resisted order and like didn't follow rules. And he was saying, you know, we see some of this, this resistance, this like um, unruliness in classrooms. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't just try to squash it. Maybe we just need to like explore what's going on here. And I thought, okay, I really want to explore this in writing programs, like with faculty, like do faculty always play by the rules? Do they always stay in line? Like, you know, we're telling them and I as a writing program director, right? Or I'm supposedly telling them, you know, here are our learning outcomes. This is what we want you to do. These are the objectives of our courses. You should be, you know, like creating assignments in this way. But, you know, 
they like faculty do what they want to do as we all know and and so it was really interesting to me like if they did uh, fall in line or diverge from what the program was asking of them like why what was the motivation behind that um, did they have different objectives that weren't our stated learning objectives, but that still, you know, had value and that the students still benefited from? Um, so, uh, yeah, I could say more about that later, but I think that, you know, like being in that dual position of teacher and WPA really made me think about like um, how, uh, you know, there's always this kind of undercurrent of resistance and and that's like sometimes like a really exciting and beautiful thing. And I just wanted to understand more about um, it, for faculty in particular, like how did they uh, forge their own path in terms of um, developing assignments for their students? And um, how did they see themselves either kind of aligning with or diverging from what the program wanted from them? So cool. <laughs> um, for me, I'd say like the research that came out of teaching was um, had kind of a storied career, but maybe the most recent, you know, getting into linguistic justice had to do with teaching ESL and looking at our like kind of exit exams, which were really focused on standardized English at a time when, um, uh, well, linguistic justice, first of all, you're going to penalize students because they're not, haven't mastered us. A dialect of English, um, a valued dialect, and even these students couldn't be matriculated into um, credit-bearing courses until they had passed this. And to me, it was um, it felt like this kind of cottage industry almost of like, well, we can keep our enrollment up if we just keep students in the ESL program, and you know, we fail them or we place them in this program when they could have probably gone on to first year composition just fine if we had the kind of support, you know, kind of whack with support or writing support or sequence support across their two year time at LaGuardia, which is more like four years or even six years. But if the whole campus was supportive and if we could sort of undo this, this idea that, that, you know, languages have to be, uh, I'm sorry, that sentences have to be perfectly constructed. And so this is a time when, you know, a, a big um, support I had was this um, area in second, second language writing. And then that kind of morphed for me into translingualism and trans, a translingual orientation to writing instruction. And that's something I really tried to bring into the classroom of like, where can students draw upon their, you know, multiple linguistic repertoires and write? And so do they have more agency with how they choose to bring in their languages, or even if it ends up being completely in standardized English, it comes from a place that they're making a choice of like, for this audience, I will do everything in a kind of monolingual language mode, but I have these other language and cultural practices to draw from or literacy practices. And not all of our students have that because some of them don't have literacy in their first language. So Anyhow, I really wanted to understand that and look at that. The whole idea was to create something that was more equitable, but that just got students to love writing instead of being afraid. You know, anytime you tell anyone you're a writing teacher, they're like, oh, you know, kind of terrified just, you know, from even the faculty members that would come into the literacy brokers, they're like, can we close the door? And they're just like, I'm so afraid of writing. Um, um, so I think that there's a way that you can make writing more inviting, but, you know, 
to these more vulnerable people for these students that are just going to associate writing with correct grammar, it, it hurt my heart. It made my job, you know, like painful. Mm. Um, so that's, it's interesting that both Dominique and I, we, we really we went into um, sociology and psychology. I really got heavily into self-efficacy theory and like, what could I do to promote students um, writing self-efficacy so that they just felt more confident and, that's one place where in my class, I would have students create blogs and publish them. And then they were they were the readers of each other's blogs. And it really motivated them <laughs> to come to me for help and just say, how is this going to sound if I write like this? Um, because they then they became much more concerned when their writing was social um, with how they sounded compared to like, I'm just going to choose really simple sentences that I know will be correct. And simple sentences breed simple ideas. If you want to have more complex ideas, that's where you need the complex sentences, the complex constructions. And I wanted to encourage, like, I don't care if it's if it's incorrect grammatically, because in a, inside of a messed up sentence, I just see an idea that needs to be finished off. And maybe that's where you need to work with me. So that's kind of that's what influenced my research, which was very contextual within my campus, but I don't think it's unique to LaGuardia. As a matter of fact, I'm sure it's not. Maria, what's Literacy Brokers and how do these organizations, what does, what does this organization do for your students at LaGuardia Community College? And how can, how can these, and how can these organizations be helpful for like two-year college students generally? Okay. So, well, Literacy Brokers comes out of, um, an area of study that um, Teresa Lillis and Mary Jane Curry worked on in, in interviewing and tracking um, scholars from what's called the, you know, the second layer of um, English. So not monolingual countries, I mean, not English speaking countries, but just kind of outside of that. So they call it kind of the outer circle. And these, these scholars needed to publish in English in order to, um, to be promoted. Some like in China actually needed to publish in English just to finish their degree. And so they were looking at like, well, how were they able to publish and what happened on their way from working in their language to writing something in English? And they found a lot of things that were really interesting, like, of course, gatekeepers, like really mean um, letters from editors just saying, you know, from reviewers just saying, this doesn't even make sense. But even little things where it's just like, okay, you, um, this sounds good. Your research is really interesting, but to publish in this uh, journal, you need to kind of reshape it so it looks like you're building on this Anglo-American scholar rather than actually going against them and building on. So it was like very political. But one thing that came up when reading their research was that they worked with what they called literacy brokers. So people could help them with their English, but also kind of with the disciplinary, you know, um, conventions and genres for publishing in Anglo-American journals. And so I picked up on that idea of literacy brokers and I wanted to bring it to my campus. We're not in the outer circles of English. We're, you know, right in the middle you know, of New York, but we have a lot of multilingual faculty. And it's almost like a little dirty secret of just like everyone needs to publish and you just figure out how to do it. Um, well, I would look at faculties writing when they wrote emails and I'm like, I think they could probably benefit from someone who was friendly, could help them 
with their language and also with, you know, trying to identify a journal and publish. So it was really focused on publishing practices of faculty. And like I said earlier, um, when I first started, some multilingual faculty came, but a lot of monolingual faculty came who were from, um, you know, industry. So nurses who wanted to become faculty members and they're like, I have to publish, I don't know how. Or, you know, in criminal justice, we had lawyers that came that wanted to be professors, like I have to publish, you know, academic writing, I don't know how. Or people from say the Caribbean are multi-dialectical and they're just like, I'm not really sure of like how my language needs to sound. So it was kind of this, call it a safe space, right? Where people could work on their writing and we could sort of solve problems. And you might have someone who's really good at like IRB who could help someone um, who wasn't, but then you have someone who's can be an English informant. So it wasn't me that was the focus, it became this community. So to your question of how does this benefit the students, I think I I don't have, I, I didn't do a study of it per se, but I can only guess that by faculty members, you know, getting support with their own English or their own kind of genre and conventions issues, maybe could be more tolerant of and seek more help with how they assess their own students' writings. Because like I said, in some ways, I think it was a dirty um, secret where you have multilingual faculty who are grading students on their standardized English. Um, so if anything, maybe it could open up to that. But I don't know. Dominique, do you have anything to add to that? Um, only that, you know, I think, Maria, you and I often talk about like the great irony of teaching writing and teaching languages in a uh, higher ed environment, it's like, we would never, we, we ask students to complete a writing project. And often, you know, in a given course, we ask them to complete what, three, four writing projects on a timeline that we would never ascribe to as academics. Like, there's no way, how long does it take for us to get a piece written, revised, out into the world. I mean, we're talking years, right? And so it it is, I think, you know, literacy brokers is a place like, you know, to use that word again, demystify, that demystifies the writing process for so many. And that that has such a it's such a morale boost, I think, to be in that environment where you can, it is a safe space, you can let your guard down, you can say, these are things I don't understand. And I think, yeah, like I found that I brought that back to my classroom, like that I I gradually started to you know speak to my students I think a little bit differently about like what are we doing here and why is this hard like it's hard for me too right now I'm workshopping a piece with this you know writing group and like it's not going well like things that you know like I my literature review is really messed up and like I, I need to read more and this it's hard to work with feedback so that that kind of like compassion for yourself as a writer that you're you're um, you know it's being reinforced in a group like literacy brokers I do think um, then translates into this compassion for what we're asking students to do which is um, really kind of like otherworldly when you think about it why 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 are we doing this but this is <laughs> this is the the standard right and and um, you know so how do you bring some humanity back to these disembodied standards. Yeah, it's, thanks for reminding me of that. That's, um, you know, getting back to our idea of like identifying the culture of writing on campus. <laughs> the thing that I always say at the beginning of um, literacy brokers every semester when we, you know, meet is behind every published piece of writing is a crowd. 
And yet we ask students to do it all by themselves. You know, it's like, it would be, and, 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 and a lot of um, scholars feel that way too. They feel really bad to ask someone for advice or for help, you know, and they're just so scared to send something into a journal. I'm like, these editors at journals, they're happy to hear from you. It's like, this is part of the mentorship that goes on. Like I have seen such generous responses in a, you know, um, reject and resubmit kind of thing. It's like, like revise and resubmit letter where someone's like, I got rejected. I'm like, let me read the letter. And I was like, they just wrote you three pages that have, are helping to guide you on how to like produce a piece of writing that they can publish. So it's just such a fallacy that writing should happen alone or that anything should happen alone except for tacos on that desert island. But, you know, I think that that's, I'm hoping that that's something that literacy brokers can demystify and that everyone would see like, if we start teaching for people to write as social writers for like real readers, instead of like these small assignments that students produce, we for ESL, students were supposed to write eight essays in one semester. And it's like, they're writing something that they don't want to write for people who don't want to read it. You know, it's just purely this kind of academic exercise. And I just thought that's going the wrong direction and how we're kind of cultivating or inculcating what writing can be. Because I just always felt like, you know, writing was the bomb. Dominique, Maria, thanks so much for joining me for an interview. And thanks so much for all the work you're doing for your students at LaGuardia Community College. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. enjoyed my interview with Dominique and Maria. I appreciate their time, the work that they're doing, teaching writing and rhetoric and all the other stuff that they teach at LaGuardia Community College. They're second to none. That's apparent. Going forward, I hope to include even more scholars who are working at the community college level, at the two-year college level. So if you're listening and you want to be featured on the podcast, reach out. If you know someone, send them my way. Okay, I'll be back next week with another new episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, episode 150, our season nine finale. It just worked out that way. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Zen Boy. Yeah.